Good morning. And for those who don't get our emails, um, maybe you've heard that John Tilstra uh, had another stroke this week and is in the hospital at Memorial, and Margaret has asked us to remember him in prayer as we open our class this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We do want to remember John in our, in our prayers today as we uplift him to you and ask that you will intercede and intervene to bring healing as you know is best in this circumstance. We uh, know that ultimately there's a day coming soon which uh, we will have freedom from all illness and sickness and disease. And we pray that we can be participants with you to help spread the, the final message of mercy that will lighten the world, that will open the avenues for your return. Be with us now as we study your word that we will uh, learn your methods and principles that our relationships with you and with each other will, will be healed and we will be more loving to you and to each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing uh, lesson number four in our quarterly, Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions. And the lesson title this week is entitled Relationships. Relationships. Somebody want to read our memory verse for us, which is Matthew seven twelve. So on everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. That's really struck me. This sums up the law and the prophets. This simple principle. When, it, when the scripture refers to the law, the law uses the term law and the prophets, what's it referring to? Because this sums up the law and the prophets. So what's the law and the prophets? Old Testament. Basically the Old Testament is typically what it refers to. Sometimes it says well, the law, prophets, and the Psalms, but generally it, it kind of says the law and the prophets. It means the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is summed up in this principle according to Christ. So what is this principle it's describing here? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. What's this principle? The law of love, which is, how would you describe it? Doing unto others that have them do unto you? (laughs) Yeah, okay, okay. Um, What does this look like in action? Okay, we got a principle, do unto others, have them do unto you. Law of love we've talked about, principle of beneficence, giving in action. There's, There's some places in scripture you can look to and say, hey, this is what it's talking about. Put others first. Die for someone. Ultimately, at the cross, we see this law in action, do unto others. And the Good Samaritan. Oh, that's another good, excellent parable to, to show this, this willingness to help others. And I think that Good Samaritan. Pardon? Of course, the entire life of Christ, absolutely. I think the Good Samaritan story, though, because of the, the tensions between Jews and Samaritans, the way Christ taught the story, fits very much with Romans 12.20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. I mean, this is the Good Samaritan story, isn't it? Right, right here. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. But, but isn't this the principle of doing unto others? I mean, if you were hungry, if you were thirsty, what would you want someone to do to you? Yeah. I'm thinking that it wouldn't necessarily always be something that would be pleasing to us, but sometimes doing unto others what is... What you would have them do unto you might mean that you do your best good for someone else, even if it's like your child needs a spank, and the best thing for them is for you to give them the spanking rather than give them a piece of candy. I like this very much. To do unto others as you'd have them do unto you means from the maturity perspective and with a mature understanding of doing, not from a childlike understanding, because a child would have you do to them 
you know, things that wouldn't really be for their best interest. But she's saying this principle is, is doing what's in the best interest of the other. So the child might need a timeout, might need a spanking, might not need a reward for some behavior. And so the principle is, um, as I put in here, um, treating others with grace, compassion, and loving accountability to call people to overcome weakness in character. Isn't that what the discipline of a parent is to help a child overcome weakness and character? And don't each one of us want to be treated by others that will help us grow and overcome uh, difficulties in our own life? Yes. Some handsome. Biblical examples is whenever, I think it was Elisha, had the army blinded and then took him in and gave him a feast. I love that. That's a great example again. Yes, I love that. Of course, what did the, the, the king want to do? Kill him. Kill him. Let's kill him. Okay, but Elijah said, no, 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 let's, uh, let's give him a feast. So this law, this principle here that we're talking about, do unto others as you have them do unto you, where does that compare in the hierarchical law system with, say, the Sabbath? There is no hierarchical law system. The law is one. Okay. So, so uh, the law is one, but we do sometimes break it down as to ceremonial and and uh, Ten Commandment law, and we we do do break it down sometimes, don't we? And and then laws of uh, health and and uh, how to how to take care of uh, of uh, d- uh, carcasses and things. Sabbath is an opportunity to do good deeds that we might not do during the working week. So you put these two laws together: Sabbath law, do unto others, you have them do unto you, and we look at the Caiaphas, Annas, and the religious leaders, and, and, and life of Christ right at the end. And they wanted them off the cross so they could go home and observe the Sabbath law, but how are they treating Christ? They weren't keeping the Sabbath either. <laughs> Not, in the, of course, in the, in the truest sense of the way God designed it, I agree. Yes, but I point this out, that in their minds, in their minds, were they keeping the Sabbath? Yes. Yes, in their minds, they thought they were obeying the Sabbath, wanting them off the cross. But were they doing unto Christ as they would have them done unto themselves? Russell? Isn't the Sabbath a, a, a perfect manifestation of the do unto others as, as you would have done unto yourself? Uh, in, the, in its rightly understood fashion, yeah. Presenting truth in love, leaving others free, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I think about this because um, some of you have heard about an Adventist pastor who is, is recruiting Three million dollars to make a Super Bowl ad? Did you hear about this? <laughs> yeah, I got an email about it. And I went to the website. There's a website out there. He's trying to get, I think it was, um, 144 thousand people to give like 200 bucks, and then they'll have close to three million dollars. That's what it was. 144,000. Of course, where did that number come from? Okay. It would be part of that special group. And and, and the commercial. Get now. Think this through, guys. Um, because it, it, it plays to Adventist narcissism. And the commercial is about, here's a, on Super Bowl Sunday, and you know it's the most watched program of the year. The commercial would go like this, and they have an, the, the script where you can read it. A group of people are watching college football Saturday afternoon, and they're excited, and they're jumping up and down, and Jesus walks into the middle of the room and says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the Lord your God. And, and, he, and there's a, a couple of little brief exchanges that go back and forth. You should be going to church on Sabbath instead of watching. And, and they said, well, what is Sunday for? And uh, Jesus sits down next to him, puts his arm around him, feet up, and goes, well, Sunday is for football. <laughs> now, 
I bring this up to ask the question. Do you think this is a helpful thing? No. no. So, so do, do you not think this would like, like poke in your finger in somebody's eye? So if, if we look at the law, we got the Sabbath law. We've got do unto others as you'd have them do unto me. Uh, do you think this will win friends? No. No, this isn't going to help us. Yes. It, it almost feels like what we were always told when we were growing up, the concept of false Christ in the end time. And if he comes into here, don't think that he's real. Well, if he walks into the middle of Super Bowl football games, is this real? Yeah, right. <laughs> so so let's, let's go on with our question, do unto others. What does it look like? This is Matthew 25, 31 through, 30, 30, through 45, thinking about where we live in time, thinking about Christ coming, separating sheep from goats is what he says. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. He will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or need clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. Yes. One homeless man treated with kindness has garnered more publicity than any Super Bowl ad could possibly garner. We've all seen it, right? Velvet voice, but he garnered more publicity because he was treated with kindness than any Super Bowl ad is going to get. I, I just think it's crazy. So do you agree that what Christ is describing here is another manifestation or a way of expressing do unto others? is you'd have them do unto me. It's part and parcel of God's kingdom of other-centered love. Okay, so with this in mind, this law of love, the law of the way of God's character of love outworking in the lives of people, the law that the, that the, uh, the new covenant says is to be written on our hearts, isn't this the law? To be written on our hearts, to love others more than self. What happens then if this law gets broken? What happens if this law gets broken? What is the consequence? If we break this law of doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. This law of other-centered love and regard. Pain and separation. Pain and separation. So in relationship, do we want people, think about your relationships now, do we want people that we're in relationship with to maintain loyalty? To us. To, to maintain an attitude of, of caring for our well-being more than they care for themselves. Do we want that? Do we want people to continue to treat us with respect and, 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 and kind regard? And if this is broken, someone betrays a trust, is disloyal, lives to use you for their own needs and gratifications, Will the relationship suffer? Will the individual who breaks trust suffer? 
And so notice both the relationship, the one who's betrayed, the betrayer, everybody suffers. If this, if this law, this law of love, this law of doing unto others gets broken, what is the remedy to fix that broken law? Repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. What, what, wait a minute, where's the legal payment come in? Does something have to change in the heart of the betrayer? Does something have to change in the mind, character, soul, heart of those who are living for self? So let's, let's back up. What, what did this law look like in Eden? Let's, let's, let's take a little history. What did it look like in Eden as God created Adam and Eve in Eden? What did this law of doing unto others of love look like in Eden? Well, God looked down after day six, uh, on day six. It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper for him. God knew that Adam needed someone to do cooking and cleaning and laundry. (laughs) He needed a helper, right? Pardon? No laundry to do it. Oh, yeah, she said no laundry. Yes, laundry wasn't, wasn't a problem at that time. Yeah, good one. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Someone to go pick the fruit for him. Okay, I got it. All right. So, but, but, and you've heard me say this before. Why? Eve was not created for these purposes, was she? No. No, why? why what was she to help Adam with? Building character. Building character, law of love. You see, whose image was Adam made in? Image of God. God is love. Adam could not enter into the fullness of God-like love without someone for Adam to serve, without someone for Adam to give himself for, without someone for Adam to sacrifice himself to uplift and promote. And so Eve was created to be the recipient of Adam's love, which would flow through her and back to Adam again, a perpetual, harmonious circle of love with Adam, Eve, and God in a triune relationship. Just as the Trinity. This is what it was designed to be. So Adam couldn't have had the fullness of God-like love without Eve to participate and receive that love. Does that make sense? A couple of hands, yes. Adam is described as being the, the king of this earth. And as such, it's such a different picture when he was created to be the caretaker of the garden. Here as the king, he was actually caring for the garden and caring for the earth rather than the earth caring for him, which is our current dynamic. Yeah, oh, yes. See, we take from the earth rather than give to the earth, don't we? Well, a current king, the subjects are subject to him, yet in this environment, the king was actually the caretaker of them. Yeah, I like that very much. Yeah, hand over here. And also, um, God had to create uh, a woman who was equal to Adam because the relationship, he already had the animals. But that relationship of love with animals and all that God had previously created would not have um, given him the same equality of love as with someone who was his equal. Let's just follow up with that. Faith I live by, 251. God himself gave Adam a companion. He provided a help, a helper corresponding to him, one who was fitted to be his companion and who could be one with him in love and sympathy. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand at by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. As part of man, bone of his bone, and flesh of his flesh, she was to be his second self. That, that equality. So, question. This is how God designed it. Co-equals. 
How has sin affected this relationship? How has sin affected God's design for human relationships? How have women been treated since sin has entered the world? Is it God's plan that women should be subordinated to men? Think about it a little bit. Men were created out of dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Women... Is that where you get the saying, dirty old man? (laughs) Women were created out of bone. Out of bone. His bone. Yeah. It was made out of dirt. We had to look no further than than the first transgression to see how sin has affected this relationship. They, They both, they throw each other under the bus. And by... The transit of property, they, they blame God for their problems. So, exactly. Wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Right. Okay. Why do so many religions argue for a subordinate place for women? And, and do you think that Adventist Church is immune of this? No. Are, are there not active, ongoing, recent, major arguments that women need to be subordinate in the church? Why? Why do we argue for this? Is it God's design, or is his design equality? Well, you know, the the argument goes back, the classic argument is Eve was deceived, and Adam wasn't. It's a historical fact, Eve was deceived. Adam just uh, went along with Eve. He just had the ring in his nose and went right along. Um, Is this fact that Eve, in fact, was deceived, is it appropriate to take that fact and globalize it to the whole human race that, therefore, women will always be more more spiritually deceived and uh, spiritually uninsightful than men. I mean, that's the basic... When they put this argument forth, that's basically what they're saying. Well, because Eve was deceived, therefore all women, through all time, will always have spiritual inferiority to men. If you don't educate women, you contribute to spiritual inferiority. If you don't educate women, well, of course, you know, they, they have that mind. I mean, you know. Part of the problem with this is that Paul uses that argument. Of course he does. Yes. But then he backs off and says, but every man comes from a woman. He was very nervous about going too far in that direction. You can read it. Is it Romans or Corinthians? I've forgotten. Corinthians. Corinthians? How come you know your Bible better than I do? That's correct. <laughs> that, 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 it's clear when you're reading the passage that that's what's happening. He's arguing that hierarchical structure. And then he says, however, every man comes from a woman, so... Remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, why do women often get blamed? You've talked a lot about fear in this class. I think we can talk about fear in connection with this. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Fear and insecurity. I think men are so insecure and so selfish that they need to have someone to blame, just like Adam. It wasn't me. It was the woman. And if you look at the religions around the world, you see women are so seductive. Women are so seductive with their wiles. Look at Delilah and Samson, you know. And if it wasn't for those thousand wives of Solomon, he would have never done all that he did. I mean, you know. Um, They're so seductive and their wiles are so... Men are just completely powerless to their wiles. And they're not responsible for their their choices once a woman gets into the situation, you see. Uh, Yes. But yet it seems 
seems like a lot of the times the stories in the Bible that Jesus is trying to teach us reconciliation, not all of them, but a lot of them are women. You know, the women at the well, um, Mary Magdalene, and all of these women, those are the ones he's using to teach us about reconciliation and forgiveness. Yeah, is it possible that the same lie that Adam threw out, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, is still being bantered about through religions of the world? It wasn't me, it was the women. That's why they can't take leadership roles in the church. They'll lead us all down the wrong path. What would you expect to happen in our marriages, in our marriages, if you experience what the scriptures promise, regeneration of heart, the law of love written on the heart again, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Regeneration of motive so that we, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his, our desires in unity with his. We live his life, as Ellen White says. If we have this experience, what do you think a marriage looks like? Do you think there's a subordinate, superior role? Or do you think there's equality that develops in a relationship where that kind of love is reproduced? What do you think happens? It would be a oneness that would be unimaginable. A oneness that would be unimaginable. Yes. Some people look at the Bible and the statements that are in the Bible, they say, okay, that's how it should be. Rather than Christ or the, or the God making statements that that's how it will be. If you eat of the tree, you will die. It doesn't mean that he will kill you. It means you will die. In 3.16, it says that your husband will rule over you. That's unfortunately an unfortunate consequence of sin. It's not how it should be. I like that very much. Yes, describing what would happen rather than what the way it should be. So do you believe that as Christ restores us to his image, we move back towards the way he designed it to be? So there's equality, not rulership. There's humble service. Uh, he who did not think equality with God was something to grasp, but humbled himself into the form of a servant. That we in our, our relationships begin humbling ourselves to serve one another. Isn't that what happens? So there becomes equality. What, well, that's in the marriage. What about in the church? Is the church Im, uh, uh, you know, uh, immune? Or would we expect a church that the law of love is being reproduced within, that is starting to, to be that pure white church clothed in the white raiment preparing for Christ, that we would begin to see equality in the church? Could we even use it as an identifier that churches that continue to take this hierarchical subordinate role and discriminate against women are showing that love is still struggling to make its way into the church? Just like in the church, I think in a relationship, being one does not mean that the woman is making her personality just like her husband or her soul has to become just like his. God creates two different beautiful people that, that have that love and it makes one unit, but it does not mean that you give up yourself to do it either in a church or in a marriage. I think you're exactly right. You know, we have our unique individualities. And in, in, my, in my practice, I, I see it, a terrible destructive thing happen in, in the certain dependent relationships where a person has such insecurity, such fear of abandonment, such fear of loneliness that they won't speak up and express their own ideas. They go along only with what the, the, the say, it's often a woman in this position, and she's dominated and controlled by a husband. And um, you will ask uh, the woman. Well, what, what is your favorite? Uh, what is your favorite um, activity to do? Well, my husband loves to go fishing. Okay. Well, what do you like to do? Well, he loves it when we go picnicking and go biking, and he enjoys to do that. Well, okay, but I'm trying to get understand. What do you like? Well, uh, my husband really likes it when I do this. There is no one home. 
They've surrendered themselves to this point that they, and what happens then in a relationship when the individual person has surrendered so much that they have lost their individuality and they're just a shadow of the one that controls them, that other, the dominant person loses interest in them. They have no texture. They have no fabric to them. They have no interest they, because they're only simply a shadow of the domineering one. When was the last time any of you stopped out in the parking lot and consulted your shadow before you made a decision? You don't talk to your shadow because your shadow will always do what you do. And in these relationships where you lose individuality, the dominant partner loses interest in the one that seems to be so compliant and so trying to please all the time. What gives substance and texture to a relationship is when there are individual minds with individual ideas who will discuss and share in loving ways a different perspective on things and won't always just simply go, you know, even God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, I'm not going to think, I'm not going to ask questions, I won't have an individual idea. Do you think God loved it or hated it when Abraham said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't destroy the city for 50 righteous, for 40 righteous. The, uh, the, the, the Lord of all the earth should do what's right. Do you think the Lord hated it or loved it that he had a person who would question him? You see, this is what love's all about. This is, what individ- this is what God has made. So you're right, I love you bringing this up. We don't lose individuality even though we have equality and humble service for each other. So when you read um, Genesis 3, verse 16, where it says that he shall rule over you, is God just describing what's going to happen instead of uh, saying, this is what I'm going to do to you? Uh, Exactly. This is a description um, of what will happen, not what God's... God has already described in other places. He showed us in Eden before sin what his design looks like. Now that you've chosen this, this is what's going to happen. So it's not him doing it to the woman... Right. But that's the consequences of the sin. Right. It's very similar to what happened whenever Israel desired a king. Yes. I will tell you what's going to happen. It wasn't that God was punishing them with the consequences. It was that was going to happen. Are there spiritual lessons we can learn from God's design for marriage? And, and I just want to run through a couple and, 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 then, and then go on because there's so much in this lesson of relationships. Life is the outgrowth of love. As God designed it, a man and a woman come together in the unity of love and life comes forth. Life is the outgrowth of love. And if you think that through and get your mind around that idea, this is the law. If, if, if life is dependent or grows out of love, then what happens in life when love is broken? The wages of sin. Sin is the breaking of the law of love. Wages of sin is death. death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. We see this as a reality of God's universe. This is why he hates sin. It breaks love and it, and it destroys all, the, all that he loves. Yes? Have you ever heard that this is the only planet that has male, female on it like this and that's the reason that we fell? Because when Eve sinned, Adam didn't want to be without her and so he... Went ahead and sinned too, and the other planets don't have that same kind of... Not from an authoritative source. <laughs> but I have heard it. But I've never been able to actually confirm it with, a, with an infallible source that I could say it's with 100% certainty. But it is a theory that has certain interest. Yes? Do you think that some women surrender who they are, what they think? Do I think it happens? Oh, I know it happens. Absolutely. And some men do too, by the way. It can go the other way. It's usually the woman surrendering to the man, but I've seen it go the other way as well. Yes. It seems like the ultimate expression of 
There you go, exactly. God is love, and what's love do? But love gives of itself, and life comes forth. Yeah, exactly. And he did it even knowing what, what would happen, yeah. Um, intimacy is, uh, so other lessons we learn from marriage, intimacy is more than physical. Much more. Genuine intimacy is something that happens in the mind and the heart. And then it has a physical expression. And love is a genuine selfless regard for the well-being of others or the other. We learn this as well. So what role now does trust play in a relationship? What role does trust play in a relationship? Well, she says there is no relationship. I would suggest there is no healthy relationship without trust. And that's what you meant, right? Yeah. No healthy relationship, no loving relationship without trust. You can have a relationship without trust. Master and slave is a relationship. But it's not a loving relationship. Sadly, many people promote the master-slave relationship as God's design for us and him. They promote it. It's wrong. It's not God's design. Jesus said in John 15, 15, I no longer call you slaves. Rather, I call you friends because slaves don't understand their master's business. God actually invites us as his intelligent creatures, as beings made in his image to as far as we can possibly attain to comprehend and understand him in, in what he's doing. So with this idea of trust, though, trust is integral. We have to have it. So questions, how does trust get broken in marriage? And I want to go through some ways trust gets broken in marriage. You probably know most of these already. The most uh, obvious one, we'll start with the most obvious first. Adultery, sexual infidelity is the most obvious way trust gets broken, isn't it? It's the most obvious. Does this always mean sex with another person? To, to, break, to break trust sexually. Do you have to have sex with another person in order to do that? Or could it include pornography? Well, I'm going to give you some stats on pornography. Um, thanks, Stanley, for providing me these stats. Um, 57 billion world, 57 billion dollar worldwide business annually, annually, 57 billion dollars uh, in, in pornography, which uh, is more annually in in revenue than the professional football, baseball, and basketball franchises combined. Put all those franchises together combined, or um, it's more in revenue than ABC, CBS, and NBC, which is only six billion dollars annually. Um, there are over 4 million pornographic websites on the internet. 25%, one in four web searches is for pornography on the internet. 20% of men visit porn sites at work. 47% of Christians say that porn is a major problem in their home. Almost half of Christian homes are affected by porn. That means in this room that there are many homes that are being affected by pornography. Visitors to porn sites include 72% of males, 28% of females. So, in other words, uh, of people who visit, 28% of the people who visit a porn site are male, 20, uh, excuse me, 72% are male, 28% are female. 1996 Promise Keeper survey at a stadium event uh, revealed that over 50% of the men in attendance at that event were involved with pornography within one week of attending the event. 51% of pastors, of pastors now, say that cyber porn is a temptation, and 37% say it is a current struggle, according to Christianity Today. Over half of evangelical pastors admit viewing pornography last year. Over half of the pastors. um, In 2000 uh, Christianity Today survey, 
33% of clergy admitted to visiting, visiting sexually explicit websites. 53% had visited such sites a few times in the past year. 18% had uh, visit, visit sexually explicit sites a couple of times a week. These are pastors. 29% of born-again adults in the U.S. feel it is morally acceptable to view movies with explicit sexual behavior. Basically one in three. Fifty-seven percent of pastors say that the that addiction to pornography is the most sexually damaging issue in their congregation. Is this a betrayal? Is it breaking trust? I see more women's head nodding than men. <laughs> Seriously, there were more women's heads nodding than men. Um, why does Satan attack us sexually? Does he attack us sexually? And I don't mean just our generation. I mean throughout human history. Why? Why do you think he does? Obviously we're vulnerable. That's, that's one reason we're vulnerable. Huge amount of pain. Huge amount of pain. Breaks the bond of love. Do you know what happens neurobiologically when we engage in sexual activity outside of, of marriage? It actually interferes with the human bonding capabilities of the brain. That when we have sex as God designed within marriage, there are certain biochemical changes that happen with various brain hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, that cause, neuro, cause the, the, the reward and pleasure centers of the brain to rewire. Such that when you have sex with an individual, um, your, your brain will rewire so that you have a, an emotional attachment to that person so that that individual person can cause you to experience a sense of joy, a sense of pleasure, a sense of excitement and euphoria more than any other individual person. You get pleasure from that person's voice, the touch of that person's hand, more than any other person. This is the way the brain rewired. God designed it this way so that we would have a bond with our marriage partner. When we uh, have sex outside that relationship, it interferes with this bonding mechanism so that we have in- impairments in our ability to bond in our marriage relationships. It severs the connections of love. This is what God, of course, wants, uh, this is what Satan, of course, wants to do. He wants to break down. It also wants to misrepresent God. One of Satan's goals, as soon as man was made in God's image, Satan wanted to efface the image of God in man and put his image where God should be. And so he wants to destroy anything that would help us or the onlooking universe learn things about God. And so he attacks us in this way. What other ways? And we're going to come to a moment, we're going to come in a moment after we go through how trust is broken, how trust can be restored in a relationship. Financial. Yes, okay, other ways. Financial, I've got that, yeah, excellent. Diverting money behind your spouse's back to selfish endeavors or to gambling or other things. That breaks trust in the marriage, yes? It's a control mechanism to enslave us into serving ourselves rather than others. The, the sexual, yeah, this, that would... Element of it. Yeah, and now I would suggest all addictions are that way. All addictions are ways to enslave us to become more narcissistic and self-centered. Sexual perversions do that, make us very self-referenced rather than other-centered and seeking to, to, uh, to um, lift up another and, and bring pleasure to another. Yes? Uh, believing a lie is another way to destroy trust. Excellent. And, and back in the sexual thing, um, sexual perversions also cause us to devalue humans. When you get involved in pornography, the, the people that you view in pornography, are, are, you don't think of them as people. They're objects. And one of the ways that, that, I, that when I have uh, patients who have pornographic um, uh, addictions, one of the things that, that just a step amongst many things that are done, 
is to help them begin thinking about the other person as a person. And so I'll say to them, next time you're on the, I said, in your imagination, I want you to imagine you're on your pornographic website and you flip the page and the next person that pops up is your 16-year-old daughter. Ah, 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 ah. Or your mother. Ah. Okay? Seriously. It really has this gut revulsion. I said, why? Why? Don't you understand everybody you're looking at there is someone's daughter? They're people. But the perversions cause us to devalue human humanity. They're not people. They're just objects for our pleasure. It elevates us. Makes us more selfish, more self-centered. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned um, the, the sexuality aspect. We mentioned finances. We mentioned, what was the other? Lying. Believing lies. Um, so basically, if someone lies to you about your spouse and you believe the lie, trust can be broken. Yeah. What else? What about the person that's married to their job? Person is married to the job. So basically acting for self. So the selfish person, and this can have many manifestations. So in the context of the marriage, the person is more interested in promoting self uh, and sacrificing their partner to keep self promoted. And that may be for their job, for their career, for whatever, or other aspects as well. How about scapegoating spouse for your mistakes? You make a mistake, you always blame the spouse. How about loyalty to other family members before a spouse? You know what I mean by this, folks? Oh, yeah. Okay, that, that uh, when, when, when holiday time comes uh, or decisions come, you choose to, to choose mom over your spouse. Repeatedly. Um, having someone other than your spouse as your primary emotional confidant. No sexual activity, but you share your heart with somebody else. And it's even worse if that person's of the opposite sex. I know some, some of us have girlfriends that go back or boyfriends that go back, you know, guy friends from school that go back many years and we've been friends before we met our spouse. Those friendships should remain friendships, but there's a special Special intimacy within the marriage relationship should, should supersede those friendships, shouldn't it? Yeah. How about we treat our spouse with unkindness, rudeness, cruelty? Beat our spouse. How we treat one in public, my daughter. He's gone through a divorce, and he acted like he didn't know her when they got in public. He could find a conversation to have with all the other women and everything else. But she thought she was the only one that observed that. But now she's found out that everybody observed it. Mm-hmm. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil, evil stored up in him. We observe. We learn about people by how they live and how they act. They re- we reveal ourselves to each other, don't we? To a great degree. Yeah. So how do, if trust has been broken in a relationship, how can trust be restored? How can trust be restored? In general, uh, Russell said it earlier, the very general overview is the one who's been offended has to be forgiving and willing to forgive. The one who's offended has to be repentant. And when that's the general overview of, of, of course. But how does that actually work? Yes. It takes time. Time. Okay, yes. Time. And, and why, why does it take time? Why? It takes time for a reason. We establish the bonds and it's we establish the trust. trust. Why does it take time to reestablish trust? Actions have to be repeated. That build- oh, somebody said it back there. Evidence, right. Somebody says, I've changed. I'm not like that anymore. I'm going to live a new life. Well, we, we love those declarations and proclamations, 
But does that demonstrate there's actually been a change? It takes time for us, us to change, though. Right. It takes time to heal. Just like any disease, it takes time to heal. So the one who's been offended has to process through the hurt, takes time to heal the hurt and be gracious and forgiving. Okay. But on the other side of it, it takes time for us to see evidence that the person is actually now trustworthy who betrayed trust. But And the reason it takes time to see the evidence is because it takes time for the one who's broken trust to experience transformation of character, practice new healthy habits, break old habits that were leading them into uh, unhealthy pathways that were breaking trust. It takes time through God's grace and working with him for character to be established in a stable way, to, to grow from immaturity to maturity. And that's really, and there are two different types of distrust. When we talk about untrustworthiness, there's the untrustworthiness of somebody who actually has evil intent in the heart and seeks and wants in their heart to harm you. Osama bin Laden, who wants to harm Americans, he cannot be trusted, right? Now, most of us don't experience our family members that way. Maybe we have a few that way, but that's very rare. And because of that, we, many people get stuck in this relationship where trust is broken. The person is sorrowful, repentant. They're crying. I didn't mean it. And, and you know it's genuine. It's true. They didn't. And, and, and they just, okay, because of that, I forgive you. And they trust again, only to get burned again. And that's because they missed the second type of mistrust. And you have, uh, you're the treasurer here of your, of your church or your, or your, uh, conference and, and the, and the ties come in and, and at the end of a worship you, weekend, you've, you've calculated up, you've got $5,000 in cash that need to go to the bank. And you have a very faithful and loyal five-year-old son. And he says, mommy, I'll take the money to the bank for you. <laughs> Would you get $5,000 in cash to your five-year-old kid to take to the bank? Because you, because he has evil in his heart and he wants to do harm? No, there's no evil in the heart. He doesn't want to do harm, but he's not mature enough to handle the responsibility. And many people get into marriage that haven't yet grown up. They haven't gained, as with, this, with the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. They haven't got governance of self yet. And therefore, they can't be trusted. Not because they intend to do harm, but they don't have mastery over self through God's grace. Does that make sense? And this is why it takes time that you may love your smart partner, you may see that they're intent, but now you may be working with somebody that has some growing up to do. And it takes time for, to experience that growing up before you can really trust again. So, um, things you can do. If you're the party who's broken trust in the relationship, what can you do to help? Well, not only do you need to repent, which is different than confession, uh, do you know how to tell the difference between repentance and confession if you're the one who's been offended? This, is, this, is, this will be very helpful to you. People who confess will maintain their changed um, demeanor, behavior, as long as the offended party remains concerned, is watching, is vigilant, is still upset, is still angry, there's still a potential consequence. Once the storm has blown over, once the consequences have been experienced, once the person's no longer watching or mad, then the behaviors will go back to the old way. That's confession. Repentance, on the other hand, is a change of heart, such that regardless of whether the other person's watching or not, the person has a new heart and new heart motives, and they seek to do good to others. And they're actually, across the board of the life, the way they live toward everyone, they're actually other-centered. They love people, other people. They want to do good. They want to be honest. They don't want to cheat. And so they practice new principles across the board. And you can watch this and how they treat people. And this will be sustaining even when there's no more storm or threat or consequence. 
They're just different people. That doesn't mean they're perfect people, but the difference is when the person who's repentant makes a mistake, they're convicted in their own heart. They're like Paul in Romans 7. Oh, what a wretched man am I. I, I, I'm sick and miserable that I've made this mistake. I don't want to be this way anymore. Lord, deliver me from this. Rather than the person who's just confessed but not repentant, they begin making their same old excuses again. I I wouldn't have done that if, if it wasn't for that woman. You know, and, and that, and so look for that difference. You can really see it, and if you watch for it, yes. You can almost understand why the Apostle Paul said it is better to remain single. And I know there was a lot of persecution going on at that time, but in reality, there are so many facets of life that you can get caught into that hurt others, or you get hurt. It's um, exhausting. It can be. So the question of how do we restore trust in a relationship? Obviously, the person who's done wrong has to have a forgiving heart, but you don't trust. You, if you trust before genuine repentance, you're only going to get burned again. Genuine trust can only be extended when the person that you're extending trust to is trustworthy. If they're not trustworthy, you're going to get burned. It's just a matter of time. Does that make sense? Okay, and so how, and so what can you do if you're the partner who's broken trust? Well, you can do things that you wouldn't normally in a healthy relationship have to do, and in a healthy relationship, if you were doing this, it would be unhealthy to do, but in the broken relationship where trust has been broken, it's like if, if you're healthy and you put a cast on your leg, it's unhealthy to have a cast on your leg if your leg isn't broken. It will actually weaken the leg. But if your leg has been fractured, putting a cast on during this time helps bring healing. So there are things you can do that in a broken context will actually bring healing, such as if a husband has cheated on his wife, not only does he need to repent, but he needs to recognize that he has injured his wife and she now has heightened fear and apprehension and anxiety and doubt. And if he's running late, the first thing that goes through her mind is, who's he with? Because trust isn't there anymore. So you have a responsibility to not only can repent in your heart, but to take behaviors that are designed to take the fear out of her heart. So you give her access to all your emails. And you give her access to your, your phone that she can dial. And if you have a, uh, have a little webcam at your office, you can let her tap in online and watch you anytime all day long. She wants to look and see what you're doing. Why? That would be unhealthy in a relationship where trust hasn't been broken. But in a relationship where you're trying to restore trust, you are willing to subordinate yourself in this way to show her I have nothing to hide. And you can do this as long as you need to do because I care about bringing you peace, not about defending me. And that's a, that's a repentant heart. So you can do stuff like that. Or if you have a history of gambling and taking money and, and going behind the back, you turn over, you bring your paycheck, and you turn all the assets over to the other partner and say, you can control it all. I, don't even, I won't even have a credit card. You can put me on an allowance and I only get what you give me. That's okay. I want you to have confidence. I won't be taking money and, and, and hurting our, our family. You, you, go, you go across the board to try and, and heal the damage that you've started. And that goes on as long as it's necessary until there's trust restored. If you've been unkind or, or cruel or, or, or mean-spirited or hard-hearted, then you actively think of ways without being asked to lift burdens from the other. You just go and help clean the kitchen. And you go and, and prepare meals. And, and you just do things without being asked because you want to demonstrate that you really care and want to heal. And you treat with kindness. Wow, we just made it through Sabbath lesson. <laughs> well, that's, we're going to skip Sunday and we're going to go over to, to Monday because I know we only have a few, few minutes left. There's a couple of things I think that are important out of this lesson on relationships.
second paragraph in the lesson, it says, um, it talks about a couple with small children who experienced serious problems with their neighbors, and on several occasions, um, in nasty tones, these neighbors told the young parents how disagreeable it was to see play equipment installed in the yard and hear the children playing on it. Um, they complained um, about certain sections of the young family's yard and how they were bothered by that and this and so forth. The young couple did not appreciate being talked to in such a harsh way and unkind tones. After all, they were not doing anything against neighborhood rules. One day when the family was harvesting apples from the backyard apple trees, the mother decided to give the neighbors two freshly baked apple pies. The neighbor accepted the pies gladly. That simple act made a difference in their relationship, uh, probably because they never would have expected anything like that from the people they'd been constantly harassing. Now, I'm going to say generally, this is, this is true. You treat, remember what Paul said, um, we read the text earlier, um, do kindness to those who have done you wrong, and it's like keeping burning coals in their head. Generally, this principle is true, but I want to point out an exception. There's an exception where this actually will make things worse. And that is when the person that you are going to do a kindness to has an entitled mindset. And so if they had an entitled and expectant and they believed that there was, it was their right to experience and get these things from you, then when you take the pies over, you might neighbor might get some response like, well, it's about time you brought me some pies. I've been waiting for them. <laughs> or, what? You made these pies without crust? Go home, put the crust on and bring them back. There are people who have attitudes like this. And when you try to do kindness and give to people like this, it doesn't actually bring them to a point of appreciating you. They will still find fault with it because they expect these things from you. You can't give to people who believe they deserve it already. Does that make sense to you? What's the way to do Matthew seven twelve to people like that? Do you think God in his heart has a desire to pour blessings upon us? He Why does he withhold them? Because he already tried giving them. And what happens when you give blessings to people who have this type of attitude? It destroys them. So you have to withhold blessings to pe- from, from people. Like this is why, think about parents. Come on, parents. Some of you parents have means. And you'd love to pour resources upon your kids. But some of your kids are in such a place that if you did, what would they do with it? They destroy themselves. You have to withhold it because you know they can't handle it. This is why I realized that I've never had a big windfall. God knows I'd destroy myself, you know? It's like, okay, I'm just scraping along from week to week. Okay. All right. But it's true. This, this is the principle. And, and I've seen this in, in, in relationships. Okay. Um, Tuesday's lesson. A big lesson here on Tuesday. Oh, and I wanted to jump... Oh, back, uh, I know I, I got off track, so I'm going to just backpedal just a little bit. And it was on that, on that betrayal. There's one other thing of betrayal that I didn't mention in relationship. And that is sharing personal secrets with others. You know what I mean. You know something, it's private, it's in the context of the marriage, and you go talk about it with someone else. How does that work now in the church? Can, can we betray trust in the church. Someone comes to you in confidence and has a problem and you begin sharing that with other people. This is a big problem. I'm going to read to you and we're going to jump to Friday's lesson. In Friday's lesson, um, the first question, it says, how much do you like to gossip? And even if you don't, do it yourself. How eager are you to open, how, how eager and open are you to hear gossip from others? What about this issue of gossip? Well, we're running low on time, so I'm just going to go ahead and read a couple of quotes from Ellen White. Adventist home, page 440. 
We, th- I love this quote. It's so visual. We think with horror of the cannibal who feasts on the still warm and trembling flesh of his victim. Isn't that a great image? Okay. But are the results of even this practice more terrible than are the agony and ruin caused by misrepresenting motives, blackening reputations, and dis- dissecting character? Let the children and the youth as well learn what God says about these things. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The spirit of gossip and tailbearing is one of Satan's special agencies to sow discord and strife, to separate friends, and to undermine the faith of many in in the truthfulness of our positions. And um, while I was researching another passage for the lesson this week, another passage caught my eye, and I thought I'd share it with you. It said a review in Herald, October 31, 1893. It says, We have had seasons for fasting and prayer, beseeching that the Lord would raise up laborers to go into the harvest fields. And yet, when laborers have been raised up and sent to different fields, many of them have not been appreciated. Even those who have given full proof of their devotion to and interest in the work. Envious tongues have spoken against them. Evil surmising have been cherished, and tares have been sown by those who would not like to reap the bitter harvest that will result. Before we appoint, appoint another day for fasting and prayer that the Lord shall raise up laborers, let us see to it that we treat those who have already been sent with respect and love as God would have them treated. Let us not treat them in such a distrustful manner that their prayers will send to God before, for deliverance from the evil surmising and evil reports of their brethren. As long as those who are doing a good work for the master are not appreciated, but accused, condemned, and oppressed by false tongues, how can we consistently ask God to raise up more laborers? There needs to be a turning away from tail-bearing and tail-bearers. What do you all think? We break trust in the church when we do this kind of stuff? How can we prepare to meet Christ if we're still practicing these methods? As we think about our, our, our memory verse for today, do unto others as you would have them do unto me. How should we do? And I think of Christ when they brought the woman caught in adultery. And not only did he not condemn the woman in adultery, he knew all the secret sins of the people who brought them, brought her. And how did he treat them? He knew they were trying to murder him. He knew they were trying to, trying to, trying to destroy him. Yet he protected the reputations of his enemies. He didn't expose them. Do you think we do that well in the church amongst our brethren? What a different place. What a different place it would be. And I wanted to go into um, the lesson on Tuesday on forgiveness and the different myths of forgiveness that impair people's ability to forgive. But we're running out of time. And uh, there is a, a, a lecture on our website the seven myths of forgiveness under the uh, seminar section uh, that goes into those seven myths. And I encourage you, if, you, if you're interested, to go there and listen to that lecture. Qu- closing questions or comments? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love, which inherently means a God of relationships. We have often misunderstood this principle we read about today that, that is... is preeminent through all scripture that we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Write your law of love in our hearts that we will care for others. We will be interested in their welfare and their well-being. We will look at others with a, with a mind's eye to see them delivered from whatever, whatever uh, troubles beset them. And that we will be your agents 
to bring healing, to bring the remedy of your love and your grace to their lives, rather than be talebearers to talk about things that we see. We pray that in our class we will experience your love and grace. We will experience the unity and pull together as friends and, and, and brothers and sisters in Christ. We will see the equality that restored love in the heart brings, and we will treat each other with that equal, that equality and respect. And that this will spread from, from this class out, out across our church and from our church out across this world. And that we will see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.